Welcome to the inaugural podcast of What Would the Smart Party Do? Or to give it its subtitle for this particular episode, Ocean's Eleven with Paul Imes. I'm Ebel Gaz, the Enfant Terrible of the UK role playing scene. And with me today, as always, I hope for these podcasts, is King Baz, Mr. D&D himself. So, to kick us off, our first question is Trad or Indy, which would win in a fight? Do you think there's actually a big enough difference between Trad and Indy? Well, yes, I do. Oh. Now, there's... Right, okay. I think, first of all, it's definitely a case that you can tell one game from the other for loads of different reasons. I think they both sit in that sort of Venn diagram of what gaming is generally. But I, I have this opinion, and tell me what you think, but I think unlike a Venn diagram where you've got those two circles that kind of in, interlap in the middle, I think indie gaming sits almost entirely within the trad gaming circle. I think indie is a subsystem of all gaming, and trad is the bigger circle, and it contains it within it, because, and this would be my contention, trad does indie, but indie can't do trad. That's interesting. Um, we, we potentially going into the area where we try to define what is trad and indie. Um, I think there's, there's more circles, is what I probably say. There's more a, a floret of multiple different circles. So I think even some of the uh, hardened story gamers would say, and, and that's, I think, what we're talking about, isn't it? When we say indie, we, we more mean the sort of story game type of things, I would guess, in this particular instance. Um, there's all kinds of different ways of playing or how you even set up when you sit down at a table or if you even have a table. So I think Trad conjures up images of all people sat around a table. There'll be a gemma, a gemma who's in charge. And I think some of the more uh, story game best ones can be there's no leader. It's all kind of up in the air as to who takes what role at what point. There might be rules for that. There might not be. It might be a bit of a feeling. Um, so I don't think... I don't think you can necessarily define the two together because, you know, a, a trad game or if you're talking D&D, you'd say some people sat around, there's a dungeon master, you have dice, you have character sheets. And I don't think any of them necessarily apply to some of the more story games because there could just be a bunch of people getting together and making a story up, literally, without any of the the baggage or structure that comes from what people would typically call a trad game. Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, I think, I think it is worth looking at some of the characteristics. So... I think you've already identified some. I mean, no one's going to disagree with the fact that your trad game has a GM uh, and clearly generalizations alert, okay? But trad gaming has a GM, um, except when it doesn't. And it usually has a bunch of people playing individual characters within that as some kind of party. And there'll be character sheets and probably dice occasionally cards and if it's crazy there might be something else and i think one of the other characteristics of your trad game is that the activity that you are doing with your trad game will tend towards action adventure again generalization of course yeah but you are generally doing something like that some people might use the word cinematic but i, I think action adventure probably encompasses the kind of stuff it is less about the sort of characteristics you might see in, in indie games or, or story games or whatever it is you want to do, where the characteristics might be not always a GM, often not. Um, 
not always people playing a bunch of people in a party with a common mission. And it's certainly, I think, in indie games, rarely about action adventure and about other activities that you might find like relationships or, or careers or feelings. And, and, you know, that's, that's fine. And, and those are all like core activities in other games. And they do tend to focus in on that to almost the exclusion of any other experience. So I think they do have those characteristics. So are they different from each other? Well, I think you can do all of that kind of indie stuff with a trad game. I think it's harder, harder to do the trad stuff with an indie game, though not impossible. Well, I think it then comes down to talking about um, systems and what they do. Uh, and it's kind of like having the right tool for the job. So um, if you took uh, a game, uh, like some, some of the more UK-based ones, there's quite a lot of independent little guys now just producing their own little game. Ashcan versions just printed off on their own printer and handed out. Uh, and a lot of that really doesn't... It's not got to go for a campaign, let's put it that way. It's a really tight, focused... This is the situation and what we're trying to get out of the game has mechanics to support that. So if, it, if it's about um, a family relationship breaking down, for example, I don't know how you do that with, for example, D&D and have the same experience or, or try to because the mechanics of D&D is uh, all about shooting things with fireballs or stabbing them with swords and there's pages and pages of monster stats and encumbrance and all kinds of things like that and none of it supports your activity so i don't think you could say that dnd would support a family relationship type game you could do it and have all the dressing if you wanted of dnd but there's nothing in the game itself that's supporting you along the way whereas some of these games will have support structures around to tell you who can talk when how far you can push things when you should uh, relent or accept if there's any kind of resolution to what's going on. Um, so I don't think you can use trad game for a lot of the the way that at the independent market a lot of things are focused on a really specific type of activity and have a support structure. And I think you're missing that if you try and use Lamentations of the Flame Princess to have a game about uh, eight-year-old girls at school and finding out who's bitchiest or something like that, for example. Yeah, and that is a fair point. I don't think they'll do it well. I don't. They certainly won't do it as well, and they may not even do it well at all. I think it can be done, and I think in the first few years of the hobby, I think as soon as like D and D got out there in the in the seventies, and there wasn't anything else to do, I think within fairly short order, people were running games that weren't parties going into dungeons, and they were quite proud of those sessions where nobody rolled a dice all day. And it was just six clerics arguing about whose god was best. And and those stories were everywhere. And I don't know, maybe they're not everywhere so much now because you don't have to use D&D to play the type of games you want to play. And if you do want to play, you know, some kind of like church synod having a row about what gospel is, I think you're right. You wouldn't go and pick up a player's handbook. You'd be mad to do that because you've got choices. And the one thing that indie does do, that does do very well, is it's viral. There'll be another 20 versions of something out tomorrow. By the time this podcast gets out, I'm sure there'll be another hack of apocalypse world that we've never even heard of. Whereas your trad games, of course, 
by their very nature are quite traditional and possibly conservative with a small c, uh, maybe a bit stable, maybe a bit, you know, once you've got your book, you can play in that for ages. And, and you mentioned campaigns, which I think is one of the characteristics of trad. It's a game that you can play for a very long time. Possibly one of the characteristics of indie is you can focus on a smaller piece of life, but you won't do it forever. And you'll move on to something different, which may well be a completely different game. Yeah, I think that's you've kind of reinforced my point in a way, saying with the clerics and the synod example, because you you won't be using D and D as the system. If you're not rolling any dice, then you can't really say it's using D and D. You might be using some of the setting, but you're not using that game, are you? No, you just you just enough. setting an area. So I think it's. Well, and then, you know, some people don't even use systems at all. I think we've, we've both had games in the past where we've signed up for something at a convention, and then when you sit down, it's really just the gym wants to run things fast and loose. He occasionally asks you to roll high or low to get an indication of how he feels it should go, for example. But I don't think at that point you're playing the particular game that's on the sign-up sheet. I think then you, you're just doing make pretend, which, which is essentially what a hobby is. You sit around pretending to be an elf for four hours. But I'd argue in those instances, you're not playing that specific game. You're just making stories up and using dice for your own ends. But you're not using the system. You're not using the game itself. Perhaps using it as a springboard or for to get your imagination fired up. Yeah, sure, sure. I, I, yeah, that, you know, absolutely valid. I mean, I, it makes me think of one of those other differentiators. Again, massive generalisation time. But there's a difference between task resolution and conflict resolution, and go and look it up, I guess, if you want to know what, what the definitions for those are. But definitely in your trad games, there's a whole bunch of task resolution. And and that that's fine. And, and that's the way that we grew up playing. And I think there's a sense that you may mature as a gamer into conflict resolution and use that as another tool in your toolbox which you can absolutely use in your track games of course you can you can make it one roll and do an entire dungeon that but i think what's interesting is that situation you describe where people like to play fast and loose with the rules is i wonder if they're trying perhaps unconsciously or subconsciously to get a little bit indie by avoiding the task resolution system that they've chosen for that session they want to, you know, get that kind of out of the way, let it blend into the background and just improvise away with the flow that they've got going on at the table. And they're probably bringing a stack of indie techniques to the table without necessarily calling them out as such. And maybe that anything but a one is just a really weird way of saying, let's use conflict resolution dice rolls for this occasion. Um, yeah, I found... A curious thing when certainly the the kind of small press scene started kicking off in the UK, there was a lot of people trying to define techniques that we've been using, and other people, I'm not saying it's, it's unique to us, but gamers in general have been using for years, and they were trying to define that bit about how how do you kick off your campaign, how do you do foreshadowing, and, and some of the more subtle techniques, and I think they found it hard, and I couldn't really give answers on a lot of these things of you know, how is it you do the thing you do when you GM? Because I think both of us are considered decent GMs on the, the UK circuit. But if you had to write down everything that you do as, as that role, how would you define it? Because a lot of it's not in a Dungeon Master's Guide or in a copy of Hot War or some other some other game. It's just techniques you've kind of learned through social interaction and, and developing over time. 
So I think a, a lot of uh, gaming comes down to just your kind of natural organic progression and, and how you interact with people. And quite a lot of the time, the rule will get tossed out the window. Yeah, yeah sure. And I'm thinking of a sort of specific example of exactly that. So I, I guess people know I like a bit of D and D in my gaming, both sorts. And you've got your, your standard, you couldn't be more trad than a game of D&D. So if we're going to define trad and try and find an example, that's got to be the one, okay? And there's going to be another example from the other side of the divide in the indie world that does something similar, I'm going to say Dungeon World. And just to sort of build on your point of it's full of stuff which almost doesn't need to be said to experience DMs, it is absolutely chocker with that kind of advice, except it's not called advice because in an indie game, advice is a rule. And that's a bit weird if you didn't think it needed to be elevated to that kind of, or promoted to that kind of thing in a book because I've got loads of Dungeon Master's guides and they did teach me how to Dungeon Master just as much as you know raw experience and getting it wrong loads of times and having good games and terrible games and, and all of that's there. But I. I, I'm kind of proud of the fact that I did study Dungeon Master's guides, but they were just that. They were guides and they were advice and suggestions and so on. Take that forward 30 years. You've got Dungeon World. I don't know because I can't do it because I'm not brand new to gaming anymore. But if somebody picked that up who'd never played a role-playing game before, I wonder if they would deliver good games straight away by seeing that advice codified in a it is now your move as DM. You must now escalate this situation because of what's just happened around the table. Whereas people like you and I were old hands at this sort of stuff. We probably looked at that advice in Dungeon World or Apocalypse World or any of those games and felt a little bit, I don't know what the word is, maybe it, it came across perhaps as a bit condescending, a little, not offensive, it wouldn't be that bad, but a little bit like, well, what did you have to do that for? You just, you know, you're making too much of this thing. But that's because we've internalised it as trad players, perhaps. Yeah, I think it's, it's definitely an epiphany I had. I sort of kicked against the, um, the the indie scene, for want of a better phrase, when it first started. But that was largely because there was a, a series of unfortunate incidents on the internet and certain people who were saying, this, this is a new game, and you play d and you're brain damaged, and all that kind of nonsense was going on. So I had a certain amount of kicking against that because they were basically kicking my hobby that I've been playing since I was 10 years old and I wasn't happy about it. And then I looked at some of the books and a lot of the information, like you say, was basically saying if you're a GM or if you're leading this game, facilitating it, you do this, that and the other. And I thought, well, of course you do, as if you need to write that down. And it's exactly that point you were saying, that just by that point in my career, for want of a better phrase, I already knew all this stuff, so it seemed daft to be saying it. But to new people coming into the gaming hobby, picking that up, uh, invaluable advice, you know, it's all stuff that we know, but where else do you get it from? Uh, and I think, I think you're right in terms of having, having it as rules or, and I think this is a, if we're going to try and define some characteristics of indie games or a small press, whatever you want to call them, um, it's usually a guide for playing a specific type of game rather than being a game as in uh, World of Darkness or Shadowrun or something like that. It's for a series of sessions, or maybe one session, usually up to, like, say, four or six is about the scope for most of them. It's a guide on how to play in a specific way to make these sort of stories, and these are the sort of things that you will do. 
so it's a it's a guide really to playing some sessions, I would say, rather than role playing in general. Whereas Trad, I think, back in the day was teaching us this is how you game, and you can apply your system to all kinds of different settings, or you can use Traveller the Cyberpunk, or you could do this, that, and the other. And it was more about the system, and not actually how you play. Yeah, well, uh, yeah, I'll take that. I think that is a characteristic, absolutely. But I think when you take that forward a little bit, people start to do quite interesting things with these laser-focused games. So I think it's right that your indie game tends to be smaller than a trad game in every single way. It's physically usually a smaller artifact, and sometimes it's a couple of sheets of A4, for goodness sake, because they're about smaller activities. And I'm just wondering, while I'm speaking, if there is such a thing as a generic indie game in the manner of GURPS or your Savage Worlds or uh, maybe Fate. I don't know, but I think if we haven't said it now, we'll say it at some point. We'll get on to Trindy. Right? Yeah, I was waiting. <laughs> but if your indie game does anything, it's really interesting that you say it just does its one thing and you're not expecting it to do anything else. So. My question to you then is, how come, as soon as an indie game has been out on a shelf for more than 10 minutes, people are hacking it left, right and centre into almost any way to play that game except the one it was designed to do? So, you know, maybe all indie games are generic from that point of view. But what I see on the internet, which is probably no guide to what's actually happening in reality, is people are hacking their games and making new versions of games more than perhaps they're just playing the original. And that's quite a, an indie thing to do. Whereas over in Tradland, your hack of D&D or RuneQuest is perhaps to write an adventure for it. Maybe that's the hack. Well, we'll take um, something like Apocalypse World as an example, which might be leading more trendy. Uh, we can define that shortly. Um, because that has a GM uh, and he's generally antagonistic towards the players or towards the characters, sorry. Specifically, not the players, but antagonistic towards oh, the right, characters. Um, and that gets hacked to death. It's in small one centimeter cubes all over the gaming floor. Uh, but I think a lot of the time people are actually using the engine, the, the dice rolling mechanic, to then do other things with because they like how that works. They like the idea of rolling 2d6. And on less than seven, you've completely screwed it up and the GM can mess with you however he wants. On a seven to nine, you get what you want, but at a cost, or it's a yes, but kind of answer. On a ten plus, you can have whatever you want, you've done, congratulations, that sort of thing. And I think they like that sort of feel to it, the fail forward of I've succeeded, but this happens, or I've succeeded and there's this consequence, or whatever. But if you actually look at Apocalypse World itself, that's packed with information about uh, the apocalypse, really, or what it might be. Uh, one of the phrases, bar forth apocalyptica, and telling you to use sort of Mad Max types phrases and scenery and all that kind of stuff to, to evoke the world. And a lot of stuff about the fronts and threats reinforces an apocalyptic game. And I don't think the hacks necessarily, because there's, there's millions out there, but I think quite a lot of them don't take that up as well. They tend to be, use this dice rolling mechanic and here's a game about Cthulhu or something like that, rather than being true copies of the game in that sort of indie characteristic way we were saying of, this is how you play this game in this setting. They seem to quite often lose some of that, but just take the core mechanic, in which case it might as well be an alternate setting for RuneQuest, but using the RuneQuest system, but it's actually set in a different world. It's in, you know, 
some novel that you like, but you use RuneQuest system. And that's how a lot of the Apocalypse world hacks feel to me. They're not taking the indie elements, they're just taking the trad mechanical crunchy bits and using them to play a game. Yeah, uh, yeah, you might be, you might be right. I, uh, do you know I don't own Apocalypse World? I don't think I own it anyway. My knowledge of that system comes from Dungeon World, which I'm led to believe is not a million miles away from a system point of view. I think it's one of the the very early hacks, um, and you know, and I, and I have a lot of time for it. I, I, I get where it's going, and and I also get that it does look very very hackable because at its core, it seems like a very simple thing to do. You get a trinary outcome to everything you roll instead of you know, a fairly traditional binary one. You've got that improvisation thing, which I think is another hallmark of indie games. And I, and I think it encourages that. Um, and maybe one of the reasons why I sometimes struggle with those kind of world games is because my natural inclination is to prep more than I need to. And I don't know if I'm brave enough to jump into that, just react to what's happening around the table thing. So. I, I, it's definitely influential and it's definitely spawned a million different things and I, and I wonder just how different they are in, in the experience of real play from each other and I, and I don't have enough experience of giving it a go because you know I, I, I'll put my cards on the table I play more trad games than indie but I probably read more indie games than trad and that's, that's the way that, that I roll in my knowledge of these things is that my indie knowledge is theoretical and I try and pull loads of it into my trad setup. But what I play is trad. Yeah, I think there's um there's a bit of a fallacy about what people are playing. I'm gonna throw that there as a, a spicy comment. Um I've tried like at least a dozen different Apocalypse World games now with different players and gems and, and all the rest of it. Uh and it took me a while to dig it out. A lot of the indie games, certainly in the, the early days when it was small press. It was just some guy in his bedroom and he didn't know how to edit the game or write it or anything like that. So you'd have to have a direct line to the designer or writer so you could work out what on earth he meant because it wasn't clear on the page. And people have got a lot better at that over time and developed the skills and all the rest of it. Um, but I think with Apocalypse World, the experience I, that I got is nothing like what I've read in the book most of the time. Wow. And it's something that, I mentioned the kind of like having to get a direct line to the designer because I found on RPG Net there was a thread and it was an actual play by Vincent Baker saying, you know, here's an example of some games I ran. And that did sound exactly like it. And it sounded it sounded like it played more like a trad game. And he just used the moves. So it was things like, um, you know, they, they pulled into, um, I think it was like a some kind of industrial complex, something like that. It was an automated machine gun. Some guy wanted to dive past that and get in underneath it and that sort of stuff. And there was no this kind of looking at the sheet or trying to do anything else. Like that. He just said what he wanted to do. And Vincent replied with the moves. And it played very much like my character's doing this and the GM told you what happened. Um, and I don't get that a lot from the games I've played. So I'm wondering with all these hacks and all the, the hundreds and thousands of games that are running for it, how many people have played the game as designed or as I read it and how many are just having their own fun, which is to going back in circles to what we were saying earlier about you sit down to a game of Cthulhu and then nobody uses the BRP rules. Well, are you playing Cthulhu at that point or are you just in that setting? I think that's still happening, but we're on the indie side. Now, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with the way people say it or they have to play it exactly as the writer intended or anything like that. People can play games however they want. But 
my suspicion is based on my limited experience is that people aren't necessarily playing the game as it's written and, and all that advice and great stuff that's in there doesn't seem to get followed as much as you might think even though you read it and think this is awesome but then how much of any book do we bring to a table well i i, I think you're absolutely right uh, my limited experiences mirror your limited experiences or add to it or whatever you want to call it but i think that's bang on and i think one of the reasons for this is that I think in the main, generalization time again, I think indie gamers started off as trad gamers. I think we all did. And I'm sure there are some people who've only recently joined the hobby, and by recently, I mean probably the last decade, and they went straight in with indie games. But I think in the main, we were trad gamers first. So we all brought trad tropes with us to these newfangled games. Certainly the designers of the first ones did. They didn't just spring out of nowhere. They, they played d d They all did, and Traveller and RuneQuest and all the rest. So back in the day, you could easily skim or ignore GMing advice. No problem at all, because funnily enough, you could rock up at a game of D&D with strangers at a tournament setting. You wouldn't have to know any rules for trap games because you would just tell the GM what it is you wanted to try and do and they would mechanically interpret that action for you and tell you what dice to pick up and what to roll. And, and if you were lucky, they might give you a sense of what you needed to roll. So that's absolutely fine, which is exactly what those kind of fiction first games are encouraging now. They're saying, do that. Don't worry about the mechanics. Just you know, tell me what you want to do, and I'll take care of that. But the trouble is, because the indie gamers all started off as trap gamers, and we're all experts in gaming now, we bring mechanical background to our decisions. So, and if you do skim the GM advice in an indie game, you're missing half the game because it's not advice, don't forget, it's rules. Yeah. <laughs> so you can't skim it, you got to do it. But I think it's really interesting because I really struggle these days to just tell a GM what I want to do purely from a character basis because knowing what game I'm playing and how the mechanics are set up and the things it's trying to do, I want to utilize that or leverage it or do something with it to play that game and not just let's pretend. And I, and I think you know, to go to your content or just buy GURPS and never play anything else, which you could do. So why not play the game in front of you? And if you're doing that, you need to know its mechanics. And if you need to know its mechanics, why wouldn't you let them inform your decision-making? And that's where I think you get into a massive circle where actually some of the more modern indie gamings with fiction first are attempting to do what we did when we were ignorant in the 70s. So maybe they're not that different after all. Yeah, so the, there are similarities, and we've got this Venn diagram, although we might argue about how many circles there are or where they intersect. Um, we've mentioned Trindy. I think I started banding that about a while back, but we probably need to discuss what it is. And I think that's a, you can look at it two ways. Is it trad games now using some of the more progressive techniques from Indian small press that have come up over the years and incorporating them? Or is it just indie games coming closer to, to their roots or something like that? So I think a, a, arguably a reasonable example, feel free to, to disagree, but Fate, for example, uh, I think is pretty trendy in that it still has a GM who leads the challenge against the group of players, but there's a lot more power on the player side to inform the story 
uh, a lot more agency for the players. Uh, but I don't know, what, what do you think about fate? I, I, I struggle with fate. I desperately want to love it. Um, <laughs> and I give it so much time and attention, but it doesn't love me back. So there's, there's stuff about fate which is brilliant. And my first exposure to it was Spirit of the Century, uh, which is a shockingly long time ago now, really, I think. Um, and I loved reading it. And I read that book and I really soaked up all of the advice in that and got into the enthusiasm of it. And when you sit down and generate characters in Fate, it gives you so much fun. I think generating characters and generating worlds, the Fate way of doing it as a group, um, doing it very collaboratively, starting with some big blank sheets of paper and maybe no more than a couple of ideas of what sort of thing you want to start with generating all of that stuff together and then having mechanical constructive characters at the end of it is brilliant. And it has never given me a bad character in all the time that I've ever done anything. And every fate variant uses different ways of achieving that. And they're all just more awesome than the last. Fabulous. But then you sit down and start to play. And that's where I can hear the gears crunching, uh, which brings me back to that thing I was talking about earlier about I bring so much trad baggage, which I can't I can't get out of my brain after all this time. It's just there. I think my prior knowledge of games gets in the way of playing Fate. It gives me great tools. It makes me want to play it. I'm kind of desperate and annoyed with myself that I can't get a satisfying game out of it, for me personally, with people I trust and know to run and deliver great gaming experiences. It never works. And, and I've, I've not just tried this once. It's a, a dozens of times, probably, because I'm convinced that there's brilliant gaming in it. And I don't think I'm alone in that. I mean, every game will have its fans, and Fate has plenty, but I, I think they're all busy writing new Fate games, and we've all had a crack at that at one point or another. I don't see a huge amount of actual plays beyond half a dozen sessions. And that's how I know it's got an indie element to it, because you know indie games just don't seem to go that long. But I struggle with it. So, and I know it's a game that you and I have sat in on many occasions and tried with different flavors of fate. And uh, well, you tell me, guys. I mean, where are you up to with your fate life so far? Is it, are you still trying, or have you tossed it to the curb? It is dead time. That's a narrative construct. It's probably just stunned. <laughs> so a curving villain in my backseat. Um, no, for, for my personal gaming preferences, I think it, I'm, I'm going to risk repeating a lot of what you said, but um, there's not enough mechanic there. Um, so when whatever I'm doing, I look at what the mechanic, what dice we're rolling, or how the outcome is uh, determined, and there's not enough there. Almost to the point of I kind of wish there wasn't anything at that point because. I'm sort of using something that hasn't got any weight to it. It feels a bit wet paper bag. Now, I know a lot of people love it and get a, a regular out of it. It's more about the narrative they create and all the rest of it. Um, but, yeah, for me, I just don't... I, I'm still got that baggage that we talked about. I like the, the the game system. I like playing a game as well as the role-playing elements and the story and creating narrative between people. So it just misses that for me, and that's... I think, like you say, it's beautifully produced. Uh, there's lots of good stuff about it. You read it, and every page, I'm just nodding my head in agreement, thinking, yeah, this is genius. Um, it's just unfortunate for, for my gaming preferences. It's not got the weight behind it that I want to see. Um, and 
to take a, an example of a game I ran, because I tried running it out a couple of times as well. I think if you're going to um, really sort of have a word about a game and what you think about it, you've got to try to run it, because you've got to read that text and interpret that and try and run it for some people and see what happens. Because um, then you, you've got your own judgment. You can't really trust someone else to run it for you and hope they've done it right. You've got to sort of really get your chops out and, and give it a go. And things happen like um, I tried to, I compelled someone. Like they didn't want to go back to their their particular homestead or whatever it was. But I said, you can have a fate point if you do, because you need to go and get your gear. You can't run off without it. And that was like a, we well, a bit of a laugh about it. I thought, oh, yeah, that guy's always heading back home to go to his moonshine still or whatever and went there. Uh, long story short is after a battle there, because it was obviously an ambush and that's why I compelled him, they'd end up spending more fate points to kind of have the mechanical fight and all the rest of it. And the players are grumbling that, it, you know, it wasn't worth taking that one fate point at the start to then spend several later on. So we're back to that thing about trad games with baggage, perhaps, that they couldn't help but looking at it narratively. When it, what, what at first seemed like an interesting thing will happen now because you've been compelled, soon became a bean counting exercise and people got grumpy about it. Now, other groups might not have that experience. They might not get that. They might just, you know, just play and don't care about how many fate points they've got left or any of that kind of stuff or how many consequences they're carrying. Um, but for me and my preferences, I, I like the game bit. So I think that's always going to shine through no matter what you do. At the, at the risk of repeating everything you just said, um, I, absolutely. You, you cannot help but want to use the mechanics in a game that's got mechanics. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And, you know, if you're going to have a stack of fate points on your little character sheet, you want to know what to do with them. And there's nothing wrong with that. And then you do start using them and then you want to play with them some more and you see them going left and sideways. You want to know how to get one back when you've spent it. And while you're doing with that, you are mechanically interfacing with the story. And then I think what happens, it does to me, is it, it stops you just improvising and doing what your character wants to do. It gets you out of that headspace. I don't want to use the word immersion, although I just did, so that's terrible, but it gets you straight out of that immersion and you start wanting to get the mechanical benefits of doing so. And that's fine. But then fate doesn't take you very far forward in that journey. You know, it just doesn't. There isn't a huge amount of game in there in that game. And that can be, it can feel very unsatisfying when you want to get some payoff for the investment you've made into a series of actions or setups or conflicts or what have you. But when it comes down to, at best, you can create an advantage to get an extra plus two, you think, is that it? And it isn't just about the numbers. I'm a far better role player than that. And everyone I know who I game with is a far better role player than that. But it's just, that just doesn't feel like there's enough of a payoff there. Um, and the narrative payoff is not going to be enough because if all I want is a narrative payoff, I wouldn't bother picking up a role-playing game at all. I'd just do fanfic or, or really play a proper indie game where we can construct a whole story out of, out of whole cloth. So I think fate is trendy, and I think it's debatable as to whether if you're playing something in the middle of that spectrum, perhaps you are compromising your way forward and not getting enough. You are diluting your trad and diluting your indie and getting the worst of both worlds, perhaps. Maybe. Let me um, throw another game out there, which you might not have experienced about or read, but just to get you read on where you think this falls. But there's a game called Ribbon Drive, which is about four people on a car journey. 
uh, and you may get to your destination or not, but it's about it's about the journey, it's about the conversation that happens and where people get to about their relationships and interaction at the end of that journey. Uh, and it's played with a soundtrack. That's part that's part of the mechanics, if you will. Not that there are resolution mechanics per se, but that's supposed to inform the feel of the story or inspire your narration or whatever. So it could be a bunch of students on a trip back home after finishing university, or it could be two couples and one's had an affair with another one and all the rest of it. But there's there's absolutely no conflict resolution or anything like that. It's just people talking in a car. So how do you think that fits into any kind of scale or Venn diagram or to, to take it back to the original point that Trad can do anything? How would do how would D at all help the story of four people in a car traveling from one end of wherever middle earth to another uh with some music in the background how how would dd help that or be be part of that oh man well you just put in a wagon instead and you've got the story already haven't you i mean i don't know ribbon drive i'm aware of it i've not played it i'd like to i'd really like to give it a go i love my music and i love the emotional weight that good music gives you and i think clearly there's a real experience to be had with ribbon drive and and I know of people that I respect who say they've had some fabulous experiences doing it. So, great. Would love to play that. It's on my to-do list. Um, do I feel that a massive urge, though, to go and do that instead of something else? Because don't forget, we're all making choices with our leisure time and our role-playing time all, all the time. And, you know, if I've only got so many hours of gaming a week, uh, do I need to go all experimental? Because to answer your question, I think it's right down the end of the, trim, of the indie spectrum. Clearly it is. It's got no GM. It's got no resolution mechanics. I'm not quite sure what you have to do with it. And I don't know what good feels like. So it's pretty out there. Can you get that same experience with a trad game? Yeah, you can. Uh, uh, but I think, uh, you know, and I'm happy to admit it again, I don't think that you would set out to get that experience using a trad system. I wouldn't pick up Traveller to do four guys in a tramp freighter between the stars discussing, you know, how they feel about the people they left behind on the last planet. Although I'm sure that there are Traveller games out there that do exactly that, probably very long-running Traveller games, where every now and again their sessions are, are no more than that. Um, and, you know, it would be like one of those great scenes in a film where you've just, got, you know, possibly that maybe a bit Tarantino-esque where you've just got dialogue and nothing else. Um, you know, and in those bits in the Tarantino films, no dice were rolled, were they? You know, there was just people saying cool stuff and reminiscing. So, yeah, I think it's possible. I think it's very possible. And I would love to take, and this is what I try to do, I try to learn lessons from the indie story game movement and pull them into my trad games because I think they can fit inside it. I absolutely do. I don't think it works in reverse so well. So to go back to your previous example of a great trendy game that I can't get my head around is when I try and bring mechanical heft to fate from my trad background, I run into trouble. But when I try and bring character generation from fate into my trad games, it works like a charm. So I think there's loads and loads and loads of stuff that Trad can learn from indie. I'm not just the other way. So let me throw a game at you then um, that maybe works in the other way. So we've talked about some stuff which I think probably sits in the middle of the divide like fate. I think Ribbon Drive is way down one end. But what would you think? Um, I know that you know this game, but if you look at a newish game like 13th Age, 
I think what you've got there is what ostensibly looks like a very trad game, but it's full of little indie tricks which have been bolted into the system. And clearly, I think that's been done to make the game better, clearly put them there. But do you think that works? Do you think they've got a place in games like that? Or are they better off just jettisoning it and making it a straight-up clone of D&D? I think your use of language there was interesting. And so they've taken some indie techniques or parts and bolted them in. I mean, I, to be fair, I've not bought the finished game. I just had the playtest game and, and did the playtest on it. Um, but the indie elements, we're going to call that, did feel very bolted on or shoehorned in or attacked on the end. They didn't feel like the writers wholly understood how some of those techniques or games work and they just included elements of them uh, to try and appeal to perhaps people with a more a wider palette. Uh, and I don't think they understood what they were doing with it, to be honest. It felt a little bit like, uh, I don't know, I'm trying to think of an example without using cultural bias or something like that. But if you went to sort of... Um, if you went to Greece to an Italian restaurant, and, uh, but, but you know, the restaurant owner had never been to Italy, he just read about it in books and created his past editions. <laughs> that, that's what 13th Age felt a little bit like to me, that they were aware of these games and they, they read, certainly read up on them, maybe played some, but it didn't feel like they fully understood what they were doing. And certainly not um, to the extent that a lot of the independently published games have become really good at their advice and incorporating their techniques as rules. That didn't seem to be the case. That seemed to be, there was just bolted on bits saying, and at this point you can do X, Y, and Z and make something up. And it seemed like uh, a trad person having heard about indie games, trying to include some of the stuff rather than uh, an expert weaving a bunch of different techniques together. So that might change in the, in the final book. As I say, I only had the play test document at the time. so. I think I think that is that that's that's a reading of it. I think it's harsh. Uh, I would I would say that the twin designers of Thirteen Pages, Rob Heinzu, mostly known for Fourth Edition D and D, which is about as crunchy as you can get. I don't, and that's a completely different discussion as to whether it's trad or indie, but it was certainly crunchy. And Jonathan Tweet, who has a pedigree in story game design i want to say even though he's worked with some very mainstream companies he's the man who came up with everway <laughs> based on cards and over the edge based on you know one word narrative descriptors i think they pulled it off you disagree which is absolutely fine i would suggest that your criticisms which would be valid if you pointed them at another target which i will suggest which would be numenera or the cypher system which for me is a game written by a trad person who's read a bit of indie and wants to sprinkle it into his stuff and doesn't succeed. Well, I'll just uh, make a small rebuttal on the, the kind of 13th stage thing. I think what what could possibly have happened, certainly the document I saw, is that the two different writers did their separate bits uh, and no one meshed them together, or not in a satisfying way for me. So it could just be they did their own things and then the whole game doesn't look quite like it fits together properly because they did sections in, in isolation, perhaps. I don't know. I don't know how they wrote it. And it's still, you know, it's a good game. We have fun playing it. I don't want to diss the game. I'm just saying what I thought about the writing. Uh, Numenera, I don't think, tries to do anything particularly indie, to be honest. 
Um, I think it's it might feel that way perhaps because it's a little bit like fate in terms of the system's very lightweight. And it's more disguised in Numenera because you get you open the book up and you're immediately hit with lists and lists of different abilities and powers that all have uh, kind of World of Darkness style different names and sobriquets and each different stream has their own word for what their special powers are, but they've all basically got powers or characteristics or advantages or and it's just a bewildering array of stuff. So it immediately looks like one of the old school 90s fantasy heartbreaker RPGs where someone's just filled this book with words and options and skills and hacks and to a new player. I think back then when we were young and had time, we'd, we'd willingly sit down and scour through it all to find out the best min-max opportunities or that kind of thing. Whereas today you look at it and just think, what are you playing at? And when you come to play the game, all these different options, quite a lot of them, a lot of them don't make any difference. They don't make sense necessarily. There's some that are clearly better than others. Some just give you a plus one, some give you a minus one. And I think a lot of it could be broken down to fake quite easily using the same world and just use fake for it and get more interesting characters and stories from doing the, the world building or the, the character building within the world than using those lists and lists of different skills and hacks and powers. Uh, but I don't see, I didn't see from reading, I didn't read Numenera fully, I just flicked through that. I read quite a lot of Strange. I didn't see any real attempt to incorporate new techniques in there. The one I'm thinking of, and I think you're right, I don't think there's much in there. Um, I think the tone um, maybe was that kind of it's all about the story, and explicitly it's all about the story. And the two things I'm thinking of mechanically, and I think, you know, story gaming or indie gaming is often not about the mechanics or the absence of mechanics. I think the bits I'm thinking of is that the GM doesn't roll, which, you know, you do see in some trad games, but that's 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 a little bit indie schmindy. And then the other thing I'm thinking of is GM intrusions, which is let's monkey around with the story and we didn't plan it this way, but let's let's take the plot in a different direction which is not particularly something you would expect from Trevking. I don't think those intrusions come across quite often as changing the story. They're very often, or again, it's down to my limited experience, but from what I've seen, that comes down to, you know, your, your weapon's stuck in its holster or you've tripped over or things like that. It's very rarely the actual story or quest or mission you're on changes completely due to an intrusion. It tends to be something a lot more focused and local to what's happening right now and quite minor. Uh, and there's no real control for the player there. That's all really pretty much the GM has an intrusion. So again, it's coming from this position of sole authority and fiat and not giving the players around the table necessarily that power to... And I think it does mention in the text that you know other people might suggest things, but there's no mechanic there that say at certain points when this is rolled or when this happens... Now players can introduce plot elements or decide something's happened or uh, take a story in a different direction. I don't think you've got that at all, really. Compared to something like some of the Cortex games, for example, which are fairly trad, but you have story points where you can li literally change bits of story or spend points to do that. Yeah, that, that is a good call, actually. I'd actually forgotten about Cortex completely. And I, 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 let's agree then that stuff like Numenera and the Strange is right up, butting up against the trad end of the spectrum and, and possibly has little or no indie in it at all. But I've forgotten about Cortex, which I think sits pretty much down the middle, not far from fate at all. Um, 
it's got that that kind of generic flavour to it, although it was a bit of something along for the ride, where, you know, fate brings a bit of pulp mentality to whatever it does, larger than life stuff, and I think Cortex does that too. I've got a lot of time for Cortex, and if I had to pick, and I guess in the interest of time, we should maybe try and get to some kind of resolution on, you know, what would we pick on the on the trendy spectrum, if you could pick a game that had its feet in both camps firmly and delivered to both sets of gamers, I think Cortex might do it as a, as a bit of a last minute thing for me there. I love what they did with Marvel. I love what they did with Leverage, which I think is a fantastic game system that has been applied by many people and hacked into lots of different things, including, interestingly enough, using the Leverage mechanics to run dungeon crawls by using that heist team as a bunch of operatives who are taking on a dungeon, which is exactly what old school D&D is. It's a heist. It's Ocean's Eleven with pole arms. And there's the title for the podcast. So <laughs> I think Cortex might be a late winner for me. If, if you're going to put a, a narrative gun in some head, what can I pick? It might be Cortex. I don't know. Where, where are you leaning? What are you thinking? What's your, your ideal trendy? Um, well, I think... I think I should probably caveat first of all because we've been talking a lot about this line and where things sit on it and stuff like that. So I've no doubt people will be up in arms about how there's just one thing. There's just role-playing games or story games or games in general and there isn't a scale and there aren't things on a line anywhere. So it's probably worth saying that we appreciate that there's all kinds of different games and they all intersect in many ways. Well, that's my view at least. Um, and I think I might have nudged you out by mentioning things like Ribbon Drive that perhaps doesn't totally encompass everything and there are games that sit outside what a tried game was and are completely different. It's still four people sat around a table making stories up, but the way you go about it, your goals, how it's reinforced, are all completely different. Um, so uh, the game I'll probably mention then is uh, what's now known as the Empire System. It's Giziana and Beat to Quarters, which is Napoleonic-style uh, adventure in the, the sort of form of Hornblower or a shot. Um now, there are some trade elements to that. There is a gem. Um, and to be fair, there's a bit of like a character builder where you can pick your background and your, your role for experiences on table. So it's a little bit traveler. So it's still got some of that baggage from the old days of, of the, the very first role-playing games. But I don't think that, to be honest, uh, I don't think that element works particularly well. I think it all evens out anyway. And you might as well just make up your final numbers. I think that could be refined if someone wanted to. Um, but good bits about it are involving uh, when you set out on a mission, the players chuck ideas in about what they want to see. So you can still have the GM with his own ideas and create his own story and weave that there, but you do get a bit of upfront input from players. And uh, If you want to have a, a fencing match on a rickety bridge in the Towers of Paris or something like that, you can throw it in and say, like, I want to have a sword fight with an officer, I want a duel, I want to be fighting over a lady. Whatever it might be, it might be a mass battle, it might be that you just want to actually resolve how you feel about your wife taking another lover while you've been away at war. But you can chuck all that stuff in as players and that's codified in the rules that you should do that and the gym will try and incorporate it. Uh, and you can create your own challenges along the way of things you want to do, little side quests, which people love in things like Fallout or Neverwinter Nights or that sort of stuff. It's all very well with this big plot, but quite often as role players, you want it to be about you. You want your moment in the limelight. You want to be able to say, well, I, my character's story at this point is about this. I want to find out what happens about, to my brother. 
and that and you can add that in and that's that's written down as part of the game that players are allowed to chuck in what they want to see which you know since time immemorial we can all have done you can have a quiet web with your gm before your dnd game and say at some point in our campaign i want this thing to happen but i think it's nice in that particular game that it just throws it straight out there and says actually and I think this is an element of trendy is that you're all a bunch of players around the table, including the GM. He's just another player. He's got a slightly different role. He's got different rules he has to abide by. Um, but he's just another player. And give, trying to even out the kind of authority, I think, amongst everyone and making everyone responsible for what's going to happen and what's put into a game, I think, is really important. And I think that game gives you some good pointers in that direction. I think that is a great call. I've really enjoyed playing Julian. And again, I, I, I apologise to myself and to Neil Gow for having forgotten to mention it because it is great stuff. And it is another example of one of those games where that thing you mentioned about scenes I'd like to see is a really brilliant technique. It doesn't take very long. It always generates good content and is perfectly liftable for any other game that you want to be playing. And I've used it you know, successfully in, in all kinds of different games I've used it used it in faith mixing the trinity streams right there you know um, quite apart from generating characters and worlds let's generate some of the elements that we want to see so that some of the notes we want to hit there's there's nothing that you couldn't take from that game all very true and unfortunately that's us out of time for this week so we'll have to leave it there look forward to hearing some comments or discussions and seeing what the internet has to make of this no doubt there should be something that comes back from it Everyone's got an opinion and we always love to hear them. See you next time on What Would the Smart Party Do?